You're listening to the Co-Creator Network. When you change the way you look at things, the things you look at change. Good afternoon. Welcome to Why Shamanism Now, a practical path to authenticity with your host, Christina Pratt. Director of the Last Mask Center for Shamanic Healing. She's talking about how shamanic skills can bring us to physical, emotional, mental, and spiritual well-being, especially when nothing else can. Now, here's your host, Christina Pratt. Welcome, everyone, to Why Shamanism Now. This is your host, Christina Pratt. And yes, we are live and up and running again. I've gotten lots of emails wondering what happened to us. And nothing happened to us. We just let our, we went off the air so that our lovely host, Co-Creator Network, could change studios. And everything is up and running and live once again. Do not fret and don't go away. (laughs) Stay with us. So today, I'd like to begin by calling in the spirits. So I call out to our ancestors all of those who lived before us, who dreamt of a better future. And we came as an answer to those prayers. So I call out to those ancestors who lived well, who died well, those who bring all that is good and true and beautiful in our ancestral lines to us that we might experience the lineage, the rich lineage of our ancestry. I call out to these ancestors to gather around us and help us to go forward in a good way, to learn from that which was done well in the past and can be continued to be done in that way. And to innovate and to forgive, to create, to change, to heal and to move on in the ways that we are inspired to do so, so that the family of humanity can grow strong. So I call out to these ancestors to gather around us here today to hold us well. To hold us as we reach down into the earth, that most essential and ancient ancestor, and we give thanks to the earth, the planet, the being. We give thanks to her for home. We give thanks for her to her for the wonder of this day, for the great beauty of this planet and the opportunity here to grow, to transform, and to become whole. We give thanks to the earth for the wonder of the dreaming that brought life to this planet in a, such a way that is interconnected, that we are all one, we are all part of this great unfolding of life. So we give thanks to the earth for this and we draw her energy up, up through all the layers of the earth and into our bodies and we ask the energy of the earth to bring the wisdom of manifestation that we might all learn how to be here in form in a good way for all living things. And as we draw the energy of the earth up into our bodies, let it infuse us, restore us, replenish us. Let us reach from this place through our hearts and minds up into the sky reaching all the way through the layers of the sky, out through the atmosphere and into the cosmos and all the way to the highest power of the universe. And by whatever name you know this energy, call this energy down into your life. Call it into this day. Call it into your body and into our proceedings. We call out to the energy of the sky to bring us blessing, to bring us generosity and to bring us protection that we might open and become vulnerable just enough to hear that new thing we must hear to be inspired to go forward in a way that is true to our own authenticity. So we call out to the sky above to come down into our bodies, into our circle, and to touch the earth and let heaven and earth dance here within us and within our circle in a way that brings all life forward. 
And with these energies within us, we call out the energy of the heart to be with us here today and to do what only the heart is designed to do, to be the crucible that allows the strong passions of our bellies that hold within it the reason that we are here to rise up to the heart to be held well and to receive the inspiration and innovation and creativity and clarity of the mind that these energies might dance together and create a third, our own knowing of why we are here. And may the heart give us the courage to live it. So give thanks for these energies gathering around us here today. May they hold us well that what needs to be said is spoken and that what needs to be heard can be heard. And that all of this unfold in a way that is good for all living things. So give thanks for the spirits gathering round and also thanks for the human spirits through whose generosity this show remains on the air and free to those who have access to a computer. We give thanks to those people, Chris um, Kinsey and Renata, for their donations this week and all others who have donated. You, if you would like to donate, you can go to whyshamanismnow.com to our website where you can find the archives, but you can also find a button that says support. And if you click that button, it'll allow you to donate any amount, large or small, and every single amount that you offer us goes directly to keeping the show on the air live and available to you. And I ask you, as you listen here today, if you are moved by the show, not just moved into agreement and the wonderful feeling of um, shared interest and, and um, right ideas, but if you're disturbed or agitated or discomforted in some way to know that that is also a movement of the heart. And if you are moved by the heart in any way, I ask you to act to act to support the show financially, to support it by sharing it with others, to support it by linking on your own sites, on your own Facebook, go to Facebook and like the page, whatever it is that you can do to help the show to grow stronger. I appreciate it because this show is there to move you and it doesn't do any good if you're not willing to be moved. So I ask you all to be, if you are moved today by today's show to do something to help the show to grow strong and to grow and to stay free and available to people on the air. So I'd like to introduce our guest today, journalist and filmmaker Dan McGuire. Welcome, Dan. Hello. And today our show is about um, Balinese healing practices and what happens as practices like these, traditional practices, um, come uh, under the crashing wave of globalization. <laughs> um, but for those of you that don't know Dan, Dan is a journalist with many, many years experience in Indonesia, beginning back in 1984. And through over all of these years, around 1996, he immersed himself in the world of the Balian, the Balinese traditional healer shaman, and is currently completing um, a documentary about um, these healers. And um, we're doing the show today in part to support this documentary, which isn't precisely done yet. And I'll let Dan explain that a bit later in the show. But um, part of the point of the message of shamanism and many other messages um, that are out there in the media right now and the good stories that are being told that help us remember why we are here and how to be here in a good way is that things happen through cooperation. Things happen through community. Things happen through allowing yourself to be moved by the heart and allowing yourself to stand up for what is important for you and to, to give the energies of your life towards those things that you have passion for and, and that have meaning for you in your life. And so we're doing this show today because um, the film needs a family. 
And so we're hoping we might find our extended family. So Dan has um, many other credentials uh, that I would like to share real quickly, and then we'll forge ahead. Um, Dan got his start in documentary as an editor on the Academy Award-winning feature documentary, The Panama Deception. And he won a Soros Sundance grant for Crash Course, a documentary in 1998 about upheaval in Indonesia. And he has worked as a foreign correspondent for ABC News and as a producer cameraman for New York Times Television, the Discovery Channel, the Learning Channel, PBS, ABC, and as a Boston Field producer for Al Jazeera and Good Morning America. I think, Dan, the list would be shorter if we list what you haven't done. <laughs> you're, 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 you're too kind. It's lovely. Um, So for those of you that like to reach Dan, um, you can find him at dan at b-a-l-i-bollyhealer.com. And his website is um, bollyhealer.com. That makes that easy. Um, And yes, we are live this week, so you're also welcome to call in at 512-772-1938. Or you can Skype in from the Co-Creator Network um, website. Um, Just click the little Skype button. Or you can email us um, now during the show or after. I'd be happy to forward things to Dan as well at Christina at LastMaskCenter.org. All right. So without further ado, Dan, how did this particular story that is kind of at the heart of this documentary, how did that story find you? Um, it, it came about because I was in a... Uh, I was in a sort of a new age bookstore and I saw a magazine called Shaman's Drum, which back in uh, has been around for a long time. It just, I believe it just uh, closed shop. But back in 1996, they did a cover story on a fellow named uh, Manku Pogog. And he was on the cover and I just sort of looked at it and I was buying my granola and then I kept back turned around and I looked at it again and I, I picked it up and started reading and um I was fascinated and I bought it and I mainly as a, as a journalist, the description of this person um, was very compelling to me. And I thought, you know, as a documentarian and as a journalist, you're always looking for an interesting character. And this guy had it in spades. And, <laughs> and I actually, the article itself is on my website. If you, if you dig around on bollyhealer.com, I, I put a PDF of that article because um, he was doing stuff which to me seemed, I mean, unbelievable because I'd spent a lot of, I'd, you know, I'd first gone to Bali in 1984 and we sort of have this idea of Bali as being, you know, a paradise place and uh, some sort of, you know, but if you spend any time in Bali, you know that it's a very, very, uh, conformity is, there's a certain amount of conformity in Bali where your obligations to your village uh, are extremely strong. It's called your banjar. And you really can't imagine, and all sorts of rules and taboos associated with the body and um, behavior. And this guy just seemed to be breaking every rule under the sun. Every every guidebook says you never touch a kid on the top of his head, or you never do this, or you never, touch, you know, you know, wave at someone with your left hand. All of these types of you know things that you're taught to take seriously. And he just is just completely going way beyond any of those things uh and then and beyond anything that i'd ever seen anyone in the west do as well so i just i just couldn't believe it and uh and i pretty much um i I pretty much booked my ticket so share some of the um just just so that readers really uh, listeners really understand because not everybody has read that article 
the healing, just share a couple of the kinds of healings they did so people understand the really, um, I don't want to use the word extreme, but it is kind of extreme. <laughs> well, it is extreme. It's, um, he would do, I mean, just, um, I don't know, uh, <laughs> it's hard to under, I mean, there was a fellow who showed up with extreme ulcerous, uh, you know, sores on his feet. Um, the article, he said that they were, thought they might be leprosy. I'm not sure about that. Um, but in any event, the person who had come there, um, had this problem and he was actually, Fogog said that it was a karmic disease and that the guy had this disease because, and this was sort of well known. This guy had killed his own brother in a dispute over property and inheritance and had gone to prison. And when he got out of prison, had in this terrible skin problem that developed. And Pogog was literally um, sucking on the guy's toes, licking his toes, these open wounds and um, and just being outrageous and telling jokes and being silly. And uh, it was just quite, you know, th- you know, nauseating on one level. Um, but the other thing on a Balinese cultural level, the feet are considered the lowest part of the body. I mean, it's you're you're walking around in, uh, you know, around barnyard animals. You would never touch anyone on their feet. And he was, you know, putting his, you know, just doing all of this stuff. And that's crazy. There's um, there were women with. Um, but it was effective, yeah. right? Well, I went and inter- I went out and, you know, uh, within seven months after that, I went out and interviewed this guy. I found him. I found his village. And uh, he said, yeah, he cured me for a full year after I went to that guy. Everyone else was afraid to touch me. And this healer um, is, uh, you know, he wasn't afraid. And I, I was my pro- my condition completely disappeared immediately. Um, and that's sort of. Yes. And I, and I'm also very, I got to say, I'm, I, I approach this from a very skeptical standpoint. I mean, if you want to see any number of documentaries, which talk about traditional medicine or someone's got a clinic in Mexico, um, to, to cure people of cancer or whatever. And it's always these kind of, he's a, you know, miracle worker and they're all of this type of, I don't know. Um, I'm very skeptical of all of that. And, um, and yet, uh, I think that there is a there's something going on here that I don't know what it is, and that's sort of what really drew me there. Well, and that this whole I, I I put this sort of in the realm of the sucking doctor and shamanism. It's like this aspect of shamanism that is a really important aspect of ancient shamanism, but it's really tricky today to for people. I mean, we're all skeptical of it, I think, even those of us who practice shamanism. I mean, it's, it's, it's really challenging with our contemporary understanding of illness and disease and things like that to embrace, to fully embrace the art of the sucking doctor and particularly to become one um, if you're coming out of the Western world. But just to be, even to believe it, I mean, I've watched some different, um, mostly Tibetan shamans doing sucking extractions and this whole this this whole part where the shaman is essentially embodying spirit and spirit is moving through the shaman and using the shaman's body to come into contact with um energies that need to be removed and released and it is a it with a true shaman it's a it's a really powerful healing form and there's ama- you know real stories of mir- miracle cures at the same time this is one of the of all of the forms of shamanism. This one takes the greatest toll on the practitioner. 
Well, well it, um, yeah, and 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 he, and and these forms obviously were all uh, developed before there was a real conception of of you know biology or, or mm-hmm. transmission of disease. Um, I'm quite convinced that uh, what he was doing, because he comes from you know five generations of healers, um, that it's something that would be called Baliaga, A-G-A, uh, which is like really old school stuff, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and. I mean, I'll tell you this story that, that, that really threw me, which was there was a guy who went to him in that same article as mentioned. He, he, he had an undescended testicle, and he was also having fertility problems. He was married, and um, undescended testicles are very, very common thing. I mean, something like one out of ten boys has it when they're younger. Um, and Pogog said, I can fix that. Um, <laughs> and he fixed it literally by um, very invasive massage from the top, pushing down above the man's genitals and then just literally coming underneath him and um, taking the man's entire scrotum into his mouth and creating pressure or a vacuum and it popped down into place. And, you know, the woman who was reporting this story in the article was a midwife and she thought she'd seen it all, but that just floored her. And it's funny, I I later mentioned this to a urologist and I, he said, "Well, now you you know you come to think of it, if you're in the in if you're in the village or you're in the tropics where uh, where infection is the first problem if you're doing any kind of surgery, um, the this technique is uh, probably you could never create, for example, a medical device that would do that. And so what they do in the West is they you know they cut someone open and they move things around down there and." Um, this was obviously a village doctor kind of technique that was, you know, passed passed down. Now, whether or not it's the best and most effective technique, the guy—I mean, it was an outpatient technique. The guy walked away from it. Um, he was he was done in fifteen minutes. Uh, and it's it you know obviously it's uh, you could never really do that in the West or even attempt to even almost you couldn't even really think about it, um, given our own you know, the, the, the possibility of abuse or intention and everything else. But, um, he was, Pogog is just like when he's in that mode and he didn't, didn't care. Um, he could do that. He, he had this, he had a role in society as a Balian where all bets are off. You go to him when you've tried everything and everything has failed. And, um, if you're ready for it, he's he's gonna he's gonna he's gonna take care of you, but you have to be willing you have to be willing to play by his rules. So right, and and so how how many years did he practice? I mean, he obviously practiced long enough in his own community to get a big reputation. Um, I should yeah no he started in 1961 and wow. his mother was still alive at that time and she had been a a healer. Mm-hmm. Um, and he had basically like all Balians tell a story of, uh, a near death experience. He had, it's all, it's, you know, it's very Joseph Campbell. Every, every Balian tells you the same story. They, they feel they have a, a they have an, a sense of a calling somewhere. They feel out of sorts. They don't feel like they fit into society. An Indonesian psychiatrist I knew said that, you know, a lot of them had all the symptoms of mental illness as children or as adolescents and as young adults. And then they have a kind of vision where they they have to, um, they are told that they have to become a healer. And if they don't, they themselves will get sick. 
And at first they deny this calling, um, but then they do get sick. And so they start, they start doing, someone just shows up on their door usually and uh, says, heal me because they had a dream and they heal them and word gets around. And before they know it, they are a Balian. Um, and that's what happened with Pogog, though he had a kind of animistic, he had his own experience, which I, I don't, I don't know if we'll have time to go into. But okay, okay. And so he practiced for decades. He yes, starting in '61, and he uh, he he became ill. He had a stroke in 1997, and um, so that's when he sort of passed it along to his son, who is now mm-hmm. also practicing. And does his son practice like his father? <laughs> I asked him that. Way? I asked him that, and I think, uh, and he gave me a kind of evasive answer, but I don't think that he would, um, I think what comes up in the film and what is what is sort of revealed after Pogog stopped practicing and after he himself was struck ill was that he felt that um, he had broken or had transgressed an agreement that he had with the healing spirit. And um, as other healers have told me, you know, there's a huge, huge price to being a healer. No one wants to be a healer. Um, it's not something that you choose. Um, you are chosen. And um, and that is, and, and certainly his son, whose name is uh, Murdano, uh, is taking a much more measured approach. Mm-hmm. So, be, so be, let's depart from the story here for just a little bit and get and get a little deeper into a, a larger sense of this world, the worldview really of Balinese healers and their attitudes towards sickness, health, and just kind of their what's their picture of how all this works. Well, it it is um, it's all about your placement, the the individual's placement in the universe, and whether they are have a balanced role in the universe or whether they are out of balance. And um, the Balian, uh, in fact, the, the, the Balian is sort of like a, uh, he's sort of like a, a free agent kind of helper of people to get back into balance when the normal routines of ritual and sacrifice and, aren't, aren't really working. A Balian is very different from a Pamanku, uh, who is a priest, who is a Hindu priest in the Bali uh, in the Balinese version of Hinduism. But in this case, Manku Pogog was in fact a, a priest as well as a, a Balian. Um, and that, there's often some crossover there. But, um, you know, if you look at, you know, the, the Balinese are a very kind of unique people in the sense that they live on this island with a big volcano right in the center of it. And they really feel that you know they are the center of the universe, and their 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 island is the center of the universe. And that volcano, which is where is where the gods reside, and there's a big temple there called Basaki, which is the mother temple, and all the other temples are sort of satellites around it. So they have a a sense of place, physically as well as you know um, uh, spiritually, that we probably don't. Um, I mean, we don't have anything like that. I mean, I know that Native Americans are very you know, aware of the directions, the four directions and things like that. But um, in addition to the four directions and the gods of the four directions, there's heaven and hell, uh, heaven where the the gods reside and hell where the demons are. And the human being is right in the middle of that sort of uh, three-dimensional mandala. 
and his his purpose his his charge is to maintain the balance between all of those things and that's done through offering and sacrifice and, and ritual as i mentioned mm-hmm. um and balian are kind of an interesting group of people they're sort of uh the outliers uh balian there are all kinds of balian first of all they're not all healers uh there are balians who will uh, stop the rain from falling on your wedding date uh, if you're planning a wedding. There are Balian who are just sort of bone setters. Uh, traditionally, the Balinese have been very good masseuse and bone setters. Um, there are Balian who um, are, are, well, Katut Lear, who's famous from the book Eat, Pray, Love, he would be a Balian Usada, who is a, a learned Balian whose knowledge, who can read the old. Um, Bali Sanskrit uh, texts on Lontar and consults those. Some Balian, for example, are, are completely illiterate. Um, there are Balian who uh, are, you know, there are women who are who call themselves Balian, but basically they're abortionists and they know basic pharmacology and, and can induce that if, if someone wants that to be done. So there's a whole range of, you know, Balian. I guess uh, Patmanku is something of a freestyle guy who... Um, brings in uh you know elements of massage as well as he can he can he's also a balian usada he he can read the manuscripts and had the a, a number of manuscripts of his own and how does um the there's also one that is a trance medium oh um, yes um trance is a you know is a very almost uh mundane uh uh type of event in bali but yes there's um balian kataksu are healers who you come to them and you bring your offerings and they light a fire and they go into trance and they speak in what uh what is called god voice which means uh, sometimes an ancestor of the patient comes forward and speaks um sometimes they speak in their own voice you hear apocryphal stories that a a Chinese person will visit a uh, a taxu de Balian and she'll just start speaking in 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 Chinese. Um, that uh, and they will most often they will sort of diagnose the problem or tell you what the problem is. Very often it has to do with black magic. They'll say you're being attacked by, by black magic. This person is doing it to you. It's best that you don't try to engage them or attack them back. You should just go to Basaki Temple and make these offerings on this date and that'll take care of it um and that's that's a fairly common type of thing that happens under uh with a uh, a balian kataksu so basically you have a you have a people who who see themselves living in this um intersection or inter- interstitial space between um compassionate spirits and demons and that they're they're tasked in life to maintain that balance and they're human and so things go awry because that's what happens to humans and so you have all of these different practitioners that then become specialists at mediating that that space that space between the human world and the spirit world it they, sounds like it, yeah it's sort of like we i guess it it, it make, might make might help to differentiate it between our kind of common view is that you know, there's God and he's kind of um, he's he's kind of out there and he wants what's best for us um, and we want to do his will. Whereas in Bali, it's much more like there are all these little gods can be obstacles. Gods can be um, gods can mess with you. Gods can toy with you. Uh, 
you want to get right with them. You want to be, it's basically, you want to be cool with God so that he doesn't, you know, mess up your life. Um, so that's why there's this, if you, anyone goes to Bali, you'll just see offerings everywhere. Women spend probably about 30% of their lives making offerings. Um, so it's really not a, a Judeo-Christian sense of heaven and hell at all. It's a very different sense. Right. I mean, there's, and, and, and that's also why, you know, the, going at it with the idea of even the word miracle, you know, we're sort of tipping our hand as, 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 as sort of lapsed Christians or Christians or coming from that worldview, because they just think that, um, you know, you need to get back into balance. You need to get right with things. And, mm-hmm. and, and as I was talking about the human being sort of in being at the center of this universe as being the sort of the, the person who's sort of uh, standing there at the fulcrum, um, inside that person's body, um, you, you know, you can, you can, you can extend this metaphor going inside the person's body because inside someone's body, they, they, they see the world in terms of energy channels, um, which either get blockages or, you know, your own internal healing energy is flowing. And so a healer will, doesn't so much as, um, try to, you know, uh, attack your disease. He does a roundabout way, which is he'll just get your own healing power, get you back into balance, and then things will take care of itself. Which, which is challenging to try to explain to Westerners, but it's not at all challenging to try to explain to other shamanic cultures because it's very much like that what is at the essence of, they talk about it differently, but it's like the Zulu Sangoma talking about the dynamic between uh, the spark of fire and the crystal of ice inside each person, and it is your job to keep them in balance in life. And that, that's a masterful life, is to live a life where they are in balance or to get back on the good red road and all of the sings in the Southwest that restore a person to the right way. You know, it's restoring them to the way of not, not good in a Christian sense, but balanced in a sense of being able to mediate your place there in the physical world and be in right relationship with the spirit world um, and that those worlds do, do interface. And it's not like God's way over there and we're over here. Oh, and then hell's over there and try not to go there. <laughs> well, it's, it's like, you know, we always talk about, you know, we have to, you know, she's, she's in a battle with cancer. We always see it mm-hmm. in terms of we've got to, you know, go out and kick this disease's ass, you know? Mm-hmm. And um, the Balinese are more like, you know, I've got to have my lawyer go talk to your cancer. I've got to um, I've got to have someone negotiate with this. Um, mm-hmm. And I've also got to, you know, just basically drain the swamp where the cancer is 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 living and is, you know, thriving. So and, and one of the big errors that I made sort of uh, speaking about this and speaking to Balian is I would say to talk to patients, I'd say, you know, did this person cure you? And and that itself, that sounds like a very innocent question, but it's. A Balian would never, ever say, I cured this person, or they were cured by me, or they would never say to another person who went to a Balian, did they cure you? That, that is a, I mean, it, it's just, that's not how they think about it. And it really, you know, again, tips your own hand of your own uh, Western sort of uh, way of looking at the world, um, rearing its head, because they don't think about it that way. They just think, I went to this person and things sort of got better. Things... Mm-hmm were were turned the mm-hmm. turned around basically right the balance of things was either set back 
the momentum was changed from a downward momentum out of balance to a getting back into balance or balance was restored or something. But then it's still the person's responsibility to live in balance. They can't just go make a bunch of wacky choices and end up out of balance again. Well, that's, you know, that, that actually kind of brings you back to Pogog because um, he does fit into this paradigm of a trickster. And while most healers like Katutli or Balian Usada types, or, you know, most of them just say, okay, make these offerings, do this, uh, come back in a couple of weeks, we'll do it again. And it's all very kind of mellow. But Pogog was more about what, you know, Joseph Campbell had this definition of the trickster, which is the disruptor of programs. Um, Pogog sort of had a, his, his such a fearsome, I mean, you'll, you'll, if you visit the site and you take a look at him, he's such a physically intimidating person. Um, and the rumors about him were so intimidating that you didn't go to him unless you were, you were at, at you know, at the end of your rope. And people who would go to him um, had basically failed. Other, other approaches had failed. And so his job as a, that's a kind of an interesting threshold. You had to pass over that threshold. And then he was there to basically reformat your hard drive. He was there to disrupt your programming. Um, and, and often if you went there with your family and most people who did go to see him went with their families, uh, he would look and diagnose what was going on as far as the whole patient in their village, in their family, in their body, um, and really just upend it. And they would have to sort of uh, recon and then try to figure out a way to reconstitute them. Well, you know, we've talked about that idea on this show and from a, a lot of different shows, actually. But I'm also recalling a show on shamanism and cancer. And it, and it is this this idea that is so challenging for Westerners to understand is that we create the situation that we're in. That, and the result of that situation is also the illness that we're in. And that, that we participate in that. There's a program. There's a way we're living our life and that this is part of the, that manifestation. It's not our intention, but it is part of the result. And that we can't continue to live in that precise way and expect a different result. And well, so this idea of disrupting the program and trying to install something that is either more authentic to the person and their healing or more balanced or whatever, I don't know. It, it is certainly – uh, it's, an, it's, it's another way for a Westerner to understand it, but it's also a way of understanding healing that is very embedded in shamanism, I think. Yeah, well, actually, actually, the, the term hacking makes, makes sense. Yeah, We're talking yeah. about Joseph Campbell and disrupting the program. I mean, a, a guy like uh, – there are certain trickster-type shamans who, who are hackers, basically. And uh, they, don't, they don't give you a little upgrade. They, they, really, they really hack into you. So. Well, and so now you all need to go read Neil Stevenson's Snow Crash. I think that's the book where you get to hack your brain. <laughs> but this, but basically, that's what the shamans are about in the book. I think that's the right one. I may have the wrong book. Same right author, maybe the wrong book. But it's about understanding that for any of this to change, we have to be willing to hack our brains. The character's trying to hack his own. But in this case, you're going to the shaman and ask them to do the hacking for you since they're specialists. They are specialists, but people, again, and most people don't want, I mean, it, the part of the problem with Pogog and the whole, his, the story, his personal story is that, um, he worked with 
he worked with villagers who came with a certain thing, and then he then and then tourists came, which is, sort of saw it as a sort of a um, you know a cultural experience, uh, which for him he he sort of negotiated it fairly well, I think. Um, but and and Kutut Lear, who is sort of well known in Bali, um, is negotiating it perfectly well. He's the guy who you can go to his house in Bali, and he's got busloads, literally busloads of tourists from Europe and Japan and the United States who, you know, show up at his place and he gives them a palm reading and he takes their money and he sends them on their way. And um, some people are, 90% of the people are totally happy with that. And in the evening, uh, on certain nights, depending on the calendar, he'll see the Balinese again. And it's a completely different relationship, a completely different, uh, you know, uh, type of treatment that he gives them. And um, he just understands that, you know, he, he, he can understand, he, he understands the game <laughs> of tourism. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Bogog didn't quite understand that game as, as clearly as he, I guess, I guess Kutitler understands uh, Western magic very, very well. He would, mm-hmm. he mm-hmm. would, he could, he, yeah. Well, it is the rare indigenous practitioner that understands Westerners that well. I think in my in my experience, those that I've experienced have um, such a different orientation in the world. They just do not get precisely how screwed up we are or or the way in which we're screwed up. And it it overwhelms them. Ultimately, there's a there's a story of um, some shamans that came uh, to present at. Well, actually, this story was when they were just first coming to the U.S. to do healings. You know, they had Westerners that had been studying with them for years in a foreign country, and they were going to be brought here to the U.S. to work. And in their own country, with their own people, they see 20 to 40 people a day, easy, and still are happy and joking and ready to go make dinner. And they they just said, yeah, sure, that's our normal thing. Set that up. In the States, they can see two, and it utterly wipes them out. (laughs) It's just different. (laughs) <laughs> well, it's um, it, it, it is is very different, and I think also um, to to take the um, to take a, a healer away from his cult, out of his cultural context, out of that geomancy that uh, informs it, out of his his power base basically is his village um, and his community, and I don't I, I'm very. I'm I'm actually I don't necessarily think it's a good idea to take people or to try to I'm I, I'm very I'm very wary of that you know people going you know bringing people over here even though when I first met Pogog I was all about oh man you got to come back to America with me mm-hmm. um, I've I've learned that lesson that uh, you know he's always going to find his identity through his own um, through his own community just as. On the occasional time, even though I'm I'm not much of a, a Christian or a Catholic, um, on those rare, rare occasions that when I've been my life has been threatened, I I didn't uh, I I did call on Jesus, even though I don't have a very uh, deep relationship with him. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't I didn't you know yell out to Shiva or Ganesh. I uh, mm-hmm. I definitely called on Jesus. <laughs> well, it, you know this makes complete sense to me. On well, many, many levels. But even if I think back in the very beginning of my own practice here in the States, I was at the Omega Institute. I was like the resident shamanic healer at the Wellness Center. They scheduled for me. I had no idea who was coming. They just showed up and they showed up one after another. And I realized um, 
very quickly that I had to have the equivalent of those palm readings because many people were there and they were visiting the shaman essentially as spiritual tourism, even here in the States. And that for me to go into some sort of deep soul retrieval work that would need some kind of follow-up was totally inappropriate. Hmm. Even though I could, it was inappropriate in that situation because that person was very much like the busloads of the uh, you know, Americans, Westerners, and Europeans showing up and getting palm readings and going away happy is that really is a better answer. It's not the full answer that person needs by any stretch of the imagination, but it's the, it's the best answer for that situation until that person makes another choice that creates a different context for a different answer. A well, there's all these, all these stories from, again, getting back to Campbell where someone goes and asks a question, but they're just sent away, dismissed. And that actually, being dis- dismissing a patient actually can, can have a therapeutic value as well. You mm-hmm. can, you can, um, you can um, and he would do that all the time. Um, just send him away. Um, you'll come back when you're ready and you're not ready. Um, well, let's, let's get into, let's share any more of this, get deeper into his story and, and, and get the full story laid out here and then look at how, you know, well, the, the the film basically, I I went and I, I, I went to visit Paul Gog and I just showed up and I said, "Hey, here I am. Can I?" Uh, I spoke some. I spoke Indonesian by then, so that I did have access. That, <laughs> that is always helpful. Um, I mean, I I still consider myself a tourist, but at least I've done some homework. And um, I had I had studied shadow puppetry in in Indonesia in Java uh, years before, which is another somewhat uh related thing um but pogog loved shadow puppetry and so we we could you know we could talk about things but still i really felt i was a tourist and then one day the whole family was out um at their local temple because there was a big festival and i was alone with their uh, pogog's father who was an invalid at the time and he had soiled himself and so i just took it upon myself to clean him up and when the family came back they were just they were undone. They, they were like shocked that a, a tourist would do something like that, um, but very moved by it. And um, that sort of changed my relationship with them because suddenly they felt um, that I was okay. There was something, you know, I might make a lot of mistakes, which I did. And so I started filming more and I got access to a number of patients. And at the same time, Western people were starting to come uh, someone who had was HIV positive and someone who was having mental problems, uh, very much, I think, bipolar disorder. And then another woman who simply went there sort of as a, on a lark. There were several Western people, some who allowed me to film, some who didn't. The odd thing is that everyone that I've filmed and who allowed me to film and who was there is doing absolutely fine right now, including the woman who is bipolar who had told me that if things didn't work out with Pogog, she was going to kill herself. She's doing very well. Um, the guy who's HIV positive is doing very, very well. This was back in the days of AZT. So um, mm-hmm. way before cocktails were on the map. And, um, and the woman who went to him with a problem where she hadn't had her period in a year, he treated her. And the next day she had her period, uh, which was, she she went there with a completely lighthearted attitude, like, oh, whatever, this is fun. See what happens. Let's do some yoga with this guy. And um, and then the next day she had a very strange fitful night and, and she had her period that, that, that very morning. Um, so 
you don't necessarily have to believe in it. But anyway, I I I, I spent this time with Pogog, and I uh, was a little bit uncertain about how this was going, given that you know the he had an, there were other people who were thinking about bringing him to America. He had already traveled to Italy at that time and had a a not particularly good experience there. And I ultimately, um, you know, after my time, three or four months had run out, I left and I returned home to hear a couple months later that he had had a stroke. And so I returned and uh, I, this, this whole sort of story and the whole sort of idea of the film uh, changed and it came to be more about... Uh, and I kept going back year after year because um, I later married an Indonesian woman and we go, go to Bali fairly often. And uh, over the years, I would visit him and see his family. And uh, it became a, a story which was, and also seeing Katut Lear and, and some of these other healers as well, watching how globalization, which was also hitting basically around that, in, uh, through the internet around 96, going through the early 2000s was just completely altering the landscape of uh, Bali and uh, traditional healers as well. And so, so what, what did he, did he share with you his, his sense of this stroke and the inability ultimately to recover from it completely? Is that correct? Yeah. He, he felt that he, it, it, the story changed over time and it's interesting to me how it changed because he was trying to figure out what had gone wrong. Why did this happen to me? Mm-hmm. And initially he thought it might be black magic. And um, when it didn't go away, he dismissed that. Uh, I took him to a bunch of other Bali on at one point. I took him to also to Basaki temple to, for, for, you know, to get holy water with his family. And we, we went on a bunch of adventures together. Um, and ultimately, he arrived um, at a at a conclusion which fit into his overall narrative. It, he, you know, we all choose a narrative to live by, and he chose a conclusion and a narrative that he could also live by, um, which was that he stepped out of his. He, he had he was supposed to only treat Balinese. Um, hmm. That while he was away and traveling abroad on that trip to Italy that I had mentioned. Um, people in his village had needed him, and that upset the spirit. And um, so that's what went wrong. Uh, and I, what was my dilemma at that time was um, who was going to heal the healer? I mean, I didn't accept that. I didn't want to accept that, and I didn't want to allow a certain amount. You know, he was basically, he was very depressed uh, going from being an incredibly physical specimen um, just the most physical person I've ever met to being a person whose body was not functioning the way he wanted to. And I thought, is there any way that I could disrupt this program? He, he had his narrative, but could I disrupt it? Could I um, insert something into it, insert a, uh, you know, a virus or a, a fix that could perhaps, you know, help make him more forward thinking and forward-looking. And uh, I personally wasn't able to do that, but I don't think it mattered because uh, he was content with himself, and I think he got to a place where uh, he he needed to be. 
he reconciled himself with his his uh, situation, and it also brings back to the whole idea of being a Balian. No one wants to be a healer. No one wants to be a Balian. When God taps you on the shoulder, unless if you're George W. Bush, it's not to tell you something you want to hear, like go invade a country. <laughs> you know, it's uh, if God really taps you on the shoulder, he's, he's he's not telling you something you want to hear, and you're going to uh, you're going to get some. You, you know, you're you're in for a ride. Um, so um, I'm wondering, and, and th- you may not have the answer to this, but I'm wondering if, um, okay, because the, the, the everyday average Balinese person has a pretty rich relationship with spirit. It's pop, their world is populated. But the Balian has got particular spirits that are moving with them in their work very powerfully in a way that's not like an ordinary Balinese person. So is there a – did he have a sense of certain spirits that were with him and really, you know, moving him to do that healing work, leaving? Um, he did. There was – his his spirit actually was uh, a, a leech. Um, <laughs> That's right. I forgot that part. A yeah. leech. And uh, this wasn't in the article. And I – you know, if for your readers, if they want to – if they want to uh, – I mean, for your listeners – uh, if they want to um, to sign, go to my website and put their name in today, then I'll know it's from probably one of your listeners. I'll there might be a way to send some of the sort of inside baseball uh, interviews that I did with him, where he talks about this type of thing. Where um, he basically had been in a very bad economic situation in the 19, early 1960s when there was a lot of hunger in Indonesia, and he asked for help. He asked for the gods. He went to a, a temple near him and said, I need help. Um, and then one day he was out in the rice fields near this uh, other temple and a voice came to him and said, Do, will you accept me? Are you brave enough to accept me? And he says, I will accept you. And um, basically, as he describes it, a a uh, a creature appeared and entered into his body. And um, the he had this um it entered into his body and gave him this power which uh, like a leech it's a uh he sucks the uh illness or what uh, the, the literal translation was eating he would eat the sickness mm-hmm. um and dissipate it basically mm-hmm. and uh i i joked to a friend of mine uh you know who choose you know we all want we all want like a, a white eagle or a you know a Noble a, buffalo, a or buffalo something. to be our spirit guide. No, he chooses a leech, and and the Balinese guy said, "No, no, he was chosen. He mm-hmm. he didn't have any choice in this matter." Um, and they and then in the most odd odd twist of twists of irony is when I was talking to Bogog's neurologist, he said to me, "You know, it's too bad that we don't have some of these new medicines that you have in the West. They're made from snake venom and leech leeches that." Wow. Uh, could have um, maybe helped him when the um, when he had the blood caught in his brain. <laughs> I thought that's very strange. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, that um, you know people actually um, it's it's just too strange. <laughs> it's a very strange story, and the the film that I'm working on, uh, which is you know long in coming, is uh, I, I see it as sort of it, it's going to have a hard time. It may it's so strange, but everything I'm I'm not making any of this up that. Um, it, it needs to find a community somewhere that's going to uh, say it's, 
you know, give me permission to make something, tell a story that is this unusual. Um, because it, it, it oddly fits together and it has its own sort of organic, uh, coherence that, um, it's probably not like any story I've ever, ever seen on the subject. Well, but Dan, you know, from my perspective, which is deeply biased in shamanism, of course, but still it's the next part of the story. Because like you said, you know, every, every Balayan has the same, that same arc of that initiatory arc. And you say, no, I don't want to do this. And then you get sick. And so then you have to, and, and, you know, and, and cult cross-culturally, we have versions and versions and versions of that mythic arc, that our archetypal arc or whatever we want to call it. And yet there, there is a part of the story that is unfolding and, um, that, that I've begun to try to talk about on the show, actually, which is what happens when those people who are embedded in a world where spirit, where the physical and the spiritual world intermingle, intermix, are, are connected, um, and, and that there's this dynamic flow back and forth, this exchange, and, the, and that the trickster is the one mediating that exchange, basically. Um, and then that culture meets this Western Leviathan, you know, that is really based on what I consider the fundamental lie of the separation of spirit and matter, which of course science isn't actually telling us is true anymore, but we're having a hard time coming back round to the fact that this idea, because that separation then creates this whole other psychological experience and spiritual experience and emotional and physical of being in the world that, and and what happens when this this narrative, this profoundly enormous narrative, comes head on with this other more ancient narrative? Frankly, and is there a way ultimately that that ancient narrative can still be the medicine, in essence, to move those stagnant places? And because this other narrative, this whole. Um, global globalization capitalism da, 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 narrative has got tons of stagnation in it so how how what happens and what's going to happen is that those canaries you know at the front of this the canaries in the mine shaft those that are hitting that wave first are going to get slaughtered you know well that, I, I i i've i'm i'm i don't know if sanguine is the word but um it's when i look at and the whole Balinese worldview, I, I'm tempted to see it in, again, the Western paradigm of, in his case, perhaps a tragic story or a story of hubris. Um, but when I look at it and try to put myself in the mind of a Balinese, uh, the Balinese are a kind of unique form of Hindus where they don't believe that they're going to be reincarnated if they're bad into some sort of lower form uh, or something like that. The Balinese actually believe that they're going to be reborn into their own family. Mm -hmm. uh, they have a, every Balinese compound, family compound has a family temple. And a Balinese is, um, after they are cremated, there are a series over a thousand days, every hundred, every hundred days, they, for, for 10 times, they do these ceremonies where ultimately the soul of this person and the ashes of this person are, is installed in the family temple. And uh, there's always another go around, basically, yeah. uh, both, both generationally uh, in that it might be passed down to your son 
or your grandkids, but you're always being coming back around. And in fact, people go to Balian to find out who who in their family they are the reincarnation of mm-hmm. when, when they're young. Um, so, in other words, they're they're not as bad off as it's it, you know they're not as bad off as Western people are who are who absolutely live in in absolute terror of that uh, of death and um, you know what comes after. Um, they they know they're going to a better place and uh, they not so much they're going to a better place actually they're just gonna, they're just going to you know they're just going to um, hit the restart button to pull back that uh, that computer a- mm-hmm. uh, analogy they're just going to get restarted again mm-hmm. and they're going to get another chance and that's um, I think uh, th- that's why they they don't have it as bad as you might think. Right, and the important thing, I, th- I mean, I, in my fantasy of the, the next part of the story that humanity hasn't really lived into yet is that it will be the era where the shamans have to, where, you know, like you said, who's the healer that heals the healer? That the healers have to come together as community and support each other. Not only do we support others in being in community, but that that next level of that communal pact has to get created to become a unified force. Of this well, energy, yeah. But I mean, it, I know, I, and I think that that's that's useful. I mean, you know, I, I just heard about a conference on shamanism. I I hope actually, in my in my in my fondest dreams, that my film can sort of serve as a, a kind of a tentpole uh, mm-hmm. where people in the shamanist community could say at least it gives them all something to talk about. It gives them a certain number of reference points, like like Al Gore's Inconvenient Truth had for had for. Um, environmentalists we can all debate it to death but at the same time we're we're communing with one another and we're talking about these issues and we're hashing things out um and figuring out where we stand so dan before we run out of time in figuring out where we stand what can people do to support you and the film so that it can do that because that would be a great thing for it to do well i I, social media is a wonderful thing and if um if you visit bollyhealer.com there's Facebook and Twitter and uh, and all and my mailing list and I will um, give you updates on how things are going. I'm going to kick off a Kickstarter campaign uh, in the coming weeks and I'm just sort of putting the final touches on that. Um, and if people can forward the information about it when I if if you if you sign up now, then I can get you the information. If you could pass it along, that would be uh, a good thing. And actually, Kickstarter is a wonderful institution. Just that it. Uh, Allows I, I I give to four or five different projects every every week, even if it's a small amount. It, it's just wonderful to support the arts and all kinds of amazing projects that they're doing there. So, do you need them to, or would you like them to do all of this to get on your email list or yep, to get on Kickstarter list. also? Uh, no, we're, the Kickstarter doesn't isn't up yet, but the, right. my email list will 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 get you in the loop, and uh, the Facebook page also. There's a Facebook page for it as well. Great. So it's bollyhealer.com. You can get on the email list through the website and then go look for it on Facebook. Yes? Correct. Great. Dan, thank you so much for being with us here today and for um, sharing this story in a way that you were transformed by the story. You know, so the story is kind of telling itself through you. It's really quite beautiful. Thank you. Thank you very much, Christina.
Yeah. And I give thanks to the ancestors who've gathered around us here today, the earth below, the sky above, and the heart energy that unites us all. I give thanks to the spirits of the shamans who practice in traditional ways that we might be guided and inspired by those who have gone before us. Um, Thank you, everyone, for listening here today. Next week, we're going to talk about not only about the soul's purpose, but I'm going to answer some questions from listeners who said, okay, great, Christina, we agree, but how do we do it? So it's going to be how do we do it uh, next week. So thank you, everyone, for listening. Have a great week.